Hawaii to Jupiter 16. There is an unidentified object closing on you fast from astern. Can you see it? Space capsules swallowed up in Earth orbit. Bond shot dead. International tension and intrigue. Another world war coming? Let's launch our investigation into the pre-title sequence of You Only Live Twice. This is Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. And Vicky Hodges. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Join us as we're cracking the code of the pre-title sequence in You Only Live Twice. Remember, subscribe to our show and tell a friend about us. Let's go. You Only Live Twice pre-title sequence opens with a United States space capsule that is engulfed by another spacecraft, incapacitating it and its communication ability in the process. The crew is captured and the scene is set for the mission. Who? is responsible for this international incident. This scene really is an updated version of what we saw in the 1939 movie Q-Planes, also known as Clouds Over Europe. We also see this concept roll out again with Oliparus in The Spy Who Loved Me. We see a space command center communicating with the space capsule here as it's being engulfed. And there is one of the two astronauts aboard the, the capsule doing a spacewalk. He's outside the capsule when the capsule is captured into a larger spacecraft. And we see the safety tether get cut and snapped as the capsule is brought into the larger spacecraft that is capturing it. The astronaut was using some type of maneuvering device to control his movements outside the space capsule, some handheld device which propels gas in various directions to move the astronaut where he wants to go. As his tether is cut, he floats away from the space capsule. Yes a dead astronaut for sure as he floats out into space so not just a capture of a spacecraft and crew now but murder i have a couple of issues with this scene first the ground control is telling the crew in the capsule that a large object is approaching them and that the astronaut should get back in the capsule there's no quick move by the <laughs> astronaut to get back in uh -huh. i'd be like yo get me in there and he has this maneuvering device to help him move more quickly than if he didn't have one. So get the hell back in there. <laughs> All right. At least make an effort. Now, admittedly, there were problems with communications as they were being disrupted by the approaching spacecraft. But still, he had over 30 seconds of screen time to get back in, or at least get close. Make a decision and use your maneuvering device to get your butt back in. But no, it wouldn't be as dramatic. But hey, <laughs> we see this again in The Spy Who Loved Me without the immediate death of a crew member as submarines are captured instead of spacecrafts. It's the same trope. It is, and it bothers me too, exactly what you just said. The guy seems to be getting further away from the capsule, and he's on a tether for crying out loud. The other guy inside could just pull the tether and pull him in. <laughs> Or he could just maneuver with the device, like you said. Uh, it's frustrating, but... <laughs> I love that Shane Rimmer is in this one. Me too. He'll be Commander Carter later in The Spy Who Loved Me. I love him in that one. I love him too. I love that he's in this one too. But here in this scene, he says, Hello, Houston, instead of Houston. <laughs> he says, Hello, Houston. Hello, Houston. Hawaii. We've lost all radio contact. We've also lost him on the scope. We lost all radio contact. We even lost them on the scope. This gives the U.S. the first concrete evidence that they have a problem. But we go back to another movie, Apollo 13, where he says, Houston, we have a problem. Shane Rimmer would maybe say, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> anyway, Shane is also in the spy movies, Diamonds Are Forever, uncredited playing Tom, Spy Game, Spies, Live and Let Die, just his voice, and Scorpio. So he's been around through quite a few. 
So throughout the space scenes in the pre-title here, the ground control, this is another thing, continues to refer to themselves as Capcom. <laughs> All right, NASA used the term Capcom, which was short for capsule communicator. And that was usually another astronaut in the control room, usually a backup for the flight in progress, who was assigned to communicate with the crew because NASA figured that another astronaut knew a lot of stuff that the crew would know or should know. Not Capcom, as in the movie. I listened over and over, trying to give them a break here, but I'm not going to. They say Capcom. Well, actually, I disagree with you, slightly. I still think instead of cap, they say cape. And I re-listened to this a bunch of times. To me, it sounds like they're saying Cape Con with an N like November, not an M like as a mic. Yeah. Well, even they if they did that, they're wrong. In that clip, and to me, it sounds like there's an N at the end of it, not an M. Yeah. Either way, they're wrong. Absolutely wrong. <laughs> and, and completely out of sync with what NASA would have done. <laughs> Okay, Houston, we have another problem. All right, let's go. <laughs> anyway, we'll give them props for the NASA Control Center, which looks pretty authentic, including the McDonnell logos on the back of some of the technician shirts that we see as McDonnell Aircraft built the Gemini capsules. Now, that's the yeah, capsule the we're seeing. really looked authentic. It did. It really did. And in real life, though in the movie they refer to the capsule as Jupiter-16, the United States, in a long-term plan to land on the moon, went through several development phases. The Mercury program, which capsule carried one astronaut. The Gemini program, which carried two astronauts. And then the Apollo program, which carried three. The Gemini program, which the capsule they're referring to here is a, a prototype of, ran from 1962 to 1966. So it was over by the time You Only Live Twice was released. But clearly the capsule being captured is a Gemini capsule, without doubt. In terms of the spacewalk using a maneuvering device, that was a real thing, and not long before the movie was filmed, Ed White was the first US astronaut to use a maneuvering unit outside of the space capsule to help move him in on space Gemini 4, the June the 3rd in 1965, which the astronaut in the pre-title sequence is using to maneuver on his EVA, extra vehicular activity. The one they use in the movie looks very much like the one Ed White used in 1965. Yep. In our YouTube video, on this podcast, you will see pictures of Ed White, the astronaut in You Only Live Twice, and the device itself. Very well done prop. Yeah, it really is. It looks remarkably like it. So they've done a great job on that prop. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think they, like I said before, I think they did a really good job with the McDonald's scene mm-hmm. and that maneuvering device. They did their homework on this one in terms of what this stuff's supposed to look like and be. And, you know, they did, they've done that before too. So it's, it's nice to see they continue to to do that homework. Yeah, props to the props department. Instead of a Gemini. I also wanted to add that what I really loved about the space part of the opening sequence is the music. It just adds to the drama that's unfolding on the screen. Loud, blazing horns. It's a brilliant soundtrack in this film and one of my favourites composed by veteran John Barry. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Ian Productions recycled this trope in the 1977 James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. So let's look at the high-level differences in how this idea gets played out. In The Spy Who Loved Me, Stromberg's ship Lipparis swallows up the HMS Ranger and the Soviet Potemkin submarines. Now, in 1939 movie Q-Planes, an organisation assumed to be the Germans 
incapacitates planes and loads them onto their ship. We later see Tony McVeigh rescue the Q and a fight ensues. We have a couple of podcasts on Q planes. Yeah, so the concept of capturing military or space vehicles of another country has been used long before any Bond books were ever written. Yes, absolutely. Now, the purpose of them stealing the planes and Q planes was to steal technology, and you only live twice. It's to cause tension between the U.S. and the Russians and have this tension escalate to war between these two countries. So we cut to the next thing to the delegates at three tables in this geodome talking about the incident. The United States delegation, the Soviet delegation, and the British delegation. The U.S. delegation is warning the Soviets who have denied any participation or knowledge of this incident that as the U.S. launches its next spaceship in 20 days, any interference will be considered an act of war. Wow. That would escalate the Cold War into World War III. Fortunately, the British are there. Vicky, thank you. Yay. <laughs> Literally in the middle. In the, and they are. They're in the middle table here, the middle section, their delegation. And their delegate asked the U.S. delegation what motive our Russian friends would have for destroying an American spacecraft. First, I love that the U.S. guy says spaceship. No one ever in the U.S. ever referred to our rockets or capsules as spaceships. That's like science fiction stuff from the early 50s. You know, that's, it's not something they would use. And the calm British guys say spacecraft. <laughs> Much more civilized. Wait, wait, and wait, wait, wait a minute. Then. They're not spaceships? <laughs> no. I, I live in the U.S., and I don't think I've ever called them anything but a rocket or a spaceship. I mean, what, what am I supposed to call them? Spacecrafts? Yeah, spacecraft. That's the no, word. I always just call them spaceships. Okay, you should have so joined the delegation. No in the U.S., I, I, I'm going <laughs> to disagree with you. You could have been on the U.S. delegation there in the film. <laughs> All right, the U.S. delegates answer that the Soviets want to gain complete and absolute control of space itself for military purposes. Okay, that was not such a wild, far-fetched idea then. So here, that actually made some sense. Well, and you hear rumblings of that happening now with the way satellites are being used and can Absolutely. a country take over yep. the space? Yeah. That's why the U.S. just created the Space Force, right? I mean, try to deal with this exact problem. There's a lot of space issues that are going to be coming up, for sure, from lots of different countries. So calmly, though, here, the British delegate responds saying that Her Majesty's government is not convinced that this intruder missile originated from Soviet Russia. He suggests their tracking station in Singapore tracked this spacecraft coming down in the Sea of Japan area. And he suggests to the Americans that they should focus their efforts there, as the British are going to do. <laughs> I love that. The Prime Minister has asked me to assure you this is what we propose to do. As a matter of fact, our man in Hong Kong is working on that now. I love that interaction. The British are in control here. The Americans look like idiots, and the Russians are there like, hey, we, we didn't do anything. These British guys are right. <laughs> Now, this scene, though, it reminds me of the auction scene in that spoof, that's 1967 spoof, Casino Royale. Oh, yeah. It came out the same year as this movie, and it was the spoof thing that was done on Casino Royale. There's the auction scene in it where there were delegates who were doing the bidding from different countries. And if you remember the whole, we do our bidding sitting down, and the other saying, if we're sitting down, we're not bidding and stuff. 
It just, this scene totally reminds me of it, but this scene is done totally straight. No real humor in it. No, there's but, no humor in it, except for us watching as watch Americans. I can't watch this scene without <laughs> thinking about that scene in the, in the Casino Royale spoof. Yeah, we got to do a podcast on Casino Royale 67. I think that would be fun. So we are over four minutes into the pre-title sequence before we see Bond at all. So let's get to him in Hong Kong. Our man in Hong Kong. We, yeah, we see Bond in bed with a Chinese woman. They talk. It's obvious they have had fun. As Bond finished kissing her, watch his mouth. It's as though he's tasting something. He moves his mouth ever so slightly including licking his lips. Then Bond asks why Chinese girls taste different from all other girls. Then Ling, who is played by Sai Chin, says to him, you think we better her? As she gets out of bed. <laughs> then you have to love Bond's line, indicating once again how polished, worldly, knowledgeable and has been with many women. No, just different. Like Peking duck is different from Russian caviar. But I love them both. <laughs> Notice on the table next to the bed is a teapot and perhaps a bottle of vodka. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Ling's best line. Darling, I give you very best duck. Okay, you can read what you want into that line, but I think we know what she means, and it's not duck. <laughs> Bond indicates that <laughs> Bond indicates that he's really sorry to have to go because they've had some interesting times together. It is a fold into the wall bed. She arises, presses a button that flips the bed into the wall with Bond in it, opens the door, and gunmen come in and riddle the bottom of the bed with bullets. Of course, we are led to believe Bond is dead. Again. Not again. That again. <laughs> the police come here <laughs> again. Yeah. So, so I, I love this scene. So uh, we were on a video call a few months ago honoring Sean Connery's work with Stephen J. Rubin, who is the author of James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, great book, by the way. And Lee Pfeiffer is the author of The Essential James Bond and The Incredible World of 007. Lee said, you see these bullet holes in the bottom of the bed as it's flipped into the wall, right? <laughs> Oh, wait, he said. Aren't they shooting blanks? Because we find out later this was all a setup to make it look like Bond is dead. How'd the holes get there, he asked. What is with that? <laughs> and he said, it's obvious that the Chinese woman and the gunman were in on this because they, they had to be in on the British plan, right? So why the spectacle, he said. Why do all this? No one else but the people who know this is happening is that it, it, it are there. So why the show? It's like, that was a good point. It's like, especially well, maybe with, not everybody there was in on it. Uh, well, I mean, they certainly want him to look like he's dead. I guess his point was they could have staged this without staging it. and just said, yeah, he was shot in Hong Kong, you know, whatever. Yeah, true. Anyway, they were a good it's point. for the drama. Yeah. And when the police come in, they certainly had to be part of the cover-up too because... Bond wasn't dead, obviously, and they were taking them. They're going to take him out of there, right? So the police show up. They enter the room, lower the bed, and they see Bond, and he's dead. Well, my question is this: when when the police come into the room, freeze frame this when when you're looking at the pre-title clip. The room is huge, and by the way, they're coming in from a different door than the one the gunman used to come in and shoot Bond in the bed. The gunman came out of a door opposite the bed, and it looks like it was another room of the apartment if you look into the room as they come out it looks like there's more furniture in there and so on it's like okay so why is this fold into the wall bed there when the room is huge usually those are used in confined spaces small rooms so that the floor space can be repurposed when the bed is not in use 
This makes perfect sense in a small room. In North America, they're called Murphy beds, named after William Lawrence Murphy, who patented the bed in, in about 1900. But the room here that Bond is in with Ling is huge. So why the fold in the wall bed? They needed it for effect. Nice when the bed unfolds and we see Bond dead. How else can you do well, that? <laughs> that? That's true. But even though the room is huge, if it's a, let's say it's a studio apartment, you still would have a Murphy bed in it, even if it was a bigger studio. But a studio apartment is a one-room one room apartment. apartment. And you look at this room, it's gigantic. Yeah, but it could, I mean, there's no walls in it. So if, that, if, that's, if that's the total of the room, other than maybe uh, a bathroom somewhere. All right. If you want to fold in the wall bed, Tom, go right ahead. Put I, it in I your house. I don't care. Like, it makes sense if, <laughs> if that is the whole apartment. <laughs> okay. He's got another room with when those shooters came in. But let's, let's move on. All right. Ling. She's played by Sai Chin, as Vicky had mentioned who is, by the way, the first Chinese Bond girl. This is 1967. And she is one of the few non-regular cast members who will show up in another James Bond movie. All right, anyone listening know what James Bond movie she will appear in later? Take a second to think. We'll wait as uh, you pause us. Go ahead. Well, while you were thinking, Shane Rimmer, who we mentioned earlier, was another non-regular cast member who showed up in multiple yeah. Bond movies. Also, we did a podcast each with Derek Lyons and Terry Mountain, who also appeared in multiple James Bond movies. There you go. That's true. And here, in case you haven't guessed yet, we'll see that Sai Chin was in Casino Royale as Madame Wu playing poker at the big game. The five million dollar Bond versus Le Chiffre game. There she is and that's at the, the table. Productions Casino Royale, not yes. the nineteen sixty seven. Yeah, right, the two thousand six one. So I love that they brought her back. That was yeah. great. And I love that they keep doing this, trying to bring people back from the past. I need so to try to get Grace Jones into No Time to Die, but there were problems that made that not happen. All right, so let's let's get back to Bond's death. At least he died on the job. I mean, he'd have wanted it that way. Yeah, that's another line that gets me. It's like, what, everybody know who this guy is in the world? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, these policemen in Hong Kong, though, they knew who James Bond was? <laughs> yeah, everybody does in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> then we get the blood on the sheets from Bond, and what's really cool here is it morphs into a burst of red that looks like spokes of a Japanese umbrella. And then an eye. Yeah. It's a very nice transition into the title sequence. And it's one of my favorites. It gives us, much like in the Thunderball pre-title, with the water being shot out of the DB5, telling us that Thunderball is all about water, a glimpse into the color tones of the movie, and red volcano lava, and more. Just yeah. brilliant. It is. Yeah. That was a fun decoding of You Only Live Twice's pre-title sequence. Okay, that's a wrap. This has been Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. And Vicky Hodges. With our quick-fire look at the pre-title sequence and You Only Live Twice. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, too. Please subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, right now through your favorite podcast app. And check us out on YouTube as well. Tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.